Hello, and welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. We are thrilled to have you joining us once again. We look forward to our time together with you today as we turn our attention to the book of Hebrews. It's going to be a great conversation as we sort of look into another way of looking at how Jesus fulfills all of the promises, all of God's work with the people of Israel and with all of the distinctives of that community. We get to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And so as we turn our attention here, we hope that you find something in it that's helpful as you do this reading and that we all find Jesus raised up in our own discipleship. Today we get to focus on the book of Hebrews, an interesting book in the New Testament, a book that has raised lots of questions about authorship and date, at one time attributed to Paul, though most people no longer believe that. Not a letter in the technical sense, especially in the early part, it ends like a letter, but most of this book reads like a sermon or a, a presentation. I think in some ways, lots of connections to the book of Matthew. Not in the text itself, but in what the author is saying, probably in who the author is writing to. The book of Hebrews seems very much like a Jewish Christian author writing to Jewish Christians. And the whole theme of this sermon in many different forms is that Jesus surpasses everything that has come before. That Jesus is supreme, superlative, Whatever word you'd want to use there, the author of Hebrews is going to time and time again find ways to make the comparison to what has been and point out why Jesus is better. And you mentioned, Clinton, I think it's just helpful to point out the genre difference here because the letters that you've been used to reading that are attributed to Paul very much have specific communities in mind and they're often workshopping problems in different ways and in different kinds of conversations. But this is far better to be thought of as a sermon than a letter. And if you come to this looking for workshopping in the same way that you've seen previous, I think you're going to miss some of the richness of this. So as you come to this, be thinking more of a put together, very kind of streamlined and thought through presentation. And I think you're going to see in that a really beautiful sort of presentation and image of what we as Christians believe the significance of Jesus is. And exactly like you're saying, Clint, the theme that this entire book hinges on is the idea of Jesus being better most the highest. Things like the Old Testament understanding of what the high priest was, we find in Hebrews Jesus to be even more than. Or early in the book here, you have this talk of angels, something that we attribute to spiritual heavenly beings, beings that are higher than earthly beings. And the author just kicks off right from the start with Jesus is above, is better, is raised to a higher place than even the angels. Yeah, Michael, I think there's some really good stuff in this book. Probably a shame that it's at the back of the New Testament. And most Christians, I think, are not especially familiar with Hebrews. I don't think it has gotten the usage that the letters of Paul have gotten. Would it be fair to say that this may be the longest letter with a single theme? Mm. I mean, we really don't take a lot of trails in the book of Hebrews. It will jump illustrations and metaphors but really stays very true to this idea that Jesus is connected to the Old Covenant in a variety of ways, but Jesus fulfills and surpasses the Old Covenant in every single instance. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to see the author using different examples 
But all of these examples on some level are coming back to that core theme. And I think that you're right to say, Clint, that we as Christians do often find ourselves in the books of Paul looking at things like grace and justification. And we maybe have not as often turned to the book of Hebrews to see how Jesus is not only the fulfillment of all of these old promises, but we also see in the book of Hebrews, I think, a very clear theology of atonement, of what Jesus did that changes everything. I mean, without this book, we would lose some of our understanding of how Jesus did for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. And it's framed in some Old Testament language. But without this book, I'm not sure that we would have as clear of an understanding of it as we do. No, I think you're right, Michael. And I think especially in those sections of the sacrifice and the high priest and the need for those to be repeated as opposed to Jesus' sacrifice that never needs repeated, I think it absolutely fleshes out the idea that Christ's sacrifice is different in character and in quality and in result than those sacrifices known to the Old Testament or to the Jews of their history. One of the features you're going to notice right away when you get to this book is all of the quotations. There's just a lot of citation happening from Old Testament sources. And it's important because like you mentioned with Matthew, Clint, that's also a feature of Matthew's gospel. You see all of these references back to what was said. And what the author of Hebrews does is to point to these realities that would have been shared by any Jew, understandings of faith and God and what that means. And what we see is that those things are not in any way invalidated. In other words, they're not made less. The author's goal isn't to make Judaism look old and outdated, but rather to look to Jesus as the fulfillment of all those things. So it's not going backwards in an understanding. It's re-envisioning and going forwards with new understandings. And you're going to see that played out right from the very beginning of this book. That's a consistent theme, I think, Michael. The law had failings. The priests had failings. The previous sacrifices in the previous temple had failings. And Jesus has no faults. Jesus is the perfect representation of what God intends for the people. And therefore, again, supersedes the old covenant in every way. And I think by extension, we could say confirms it. The, the book of Hebrews isn't maybe big on that language, but I think we could see that in it. So right from the start here, you start with the idea of Jesus being superior to the angels, and that ties directly into the reality that Jesus was also fully human. And this is a very robust understanding of who Jesus Christ is, fully God, fully man. And it's significant because the author of Hebrews is going to quickly turn, once we get past the second chapter, to talking about how the human sacrifices, which were essentially stopgap measures because of human sinfulness, can only really have an ultimate conclusion if God, the perfecter and creator of everything, isn't involved. Humans are fallible, and so therefore our ability to atone for our sin is fallible, that we can only do what God tells us to do. But the author of Hebrews starts to say, but Jesus isn't just a human, he's God. And as creator, therefore he lives outside of that sinfulness and can do for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. But yet the author turns right away to say, but that doesn't mean Jesus isn't fully human because God couldn't have helped us if God wasn't human. God couldn't solve human problems 
if God wasn't a human. So it's just this beautiful sort of start to a book that says that God has a tailor-made solution to the problem we created, and it required a kind of answer that no one saw coming. Yeah, and I think that as the author paints that picture of Christ as superior, the author then asks us to keep our eyes on that so that we both exalt Christ, which is appropriate, and follow Christ and not return to any of the lesser ways. There may be a sense here in which the author is warning those Jewish Christians not to go backwards. We've seen that in you know some of Paul's letters, especially circumcision. I will say that I think as you read this book, try to take each shift on its own and read it carefully. There's a sense in which this can be repetitive, right, Michael? I mean, you start off with Christ is better than the angels, then better than Moses, then better than Joshua, then better than the high priests, then better than Abraham. And there's a sense about three or four turns in where you think, I've seen this before. But if you carefully look at each transition and the case that the author is making in that specific situation, I think you can really learn a lot from this letter. And I think you can see it build toward the transition point, which I would say happens around chapter 10. But until then, do your best not to think, oh, I've read this before, because you really haven't. If you read carefully, you haven't read it before. You read something like it, but each turn, the author does something different that helps build the whole case. I think you're exactly right, Clint. And I think the idea that it's building can be seen pretty clearly with one simple word. When you're reading the book of Hebrews, I would be very attuned to the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, something is being closed and now there's going to be a new thing built on top of it. So when you see, therefore, pause and think, well, what was the thing that we just had before? And then start turning your attention to, well, what's the thing that's going to come ahead? Because if you do that, you're going to see, therefore, therefore, therefore. And we start building a base of, because of this thing is true, therefore, this thing is true. And we won't bore you with all of the realities of that. But this letter, as we said, is fashioned like a sermon. And in ancient public speaking, there were conventions of ways in which you would do it. And the way of building a case like this slowly and methodically and including these kind of examples and citations, all of these are markers of that kind of public speaking. And if we, like you're saying, Clint, rush through and say, well, yeah, Jesus is the greatest and the best. And we all know that. Let's keep on moving. You're going to miss these different layers in the structure. And quite frankly, the turn that happens will just not have the gravity it was intended to have. Yeah, the author does this thing, you know, then and now, used to be, now it is. And I would echo that 100%, Michael, and I would point out two of those Therefore, the first one in chapter six, where the author warns people against going back. In other words, if now is complete and then was incomplete, then don't fall away. Don't go backwards. You know, verse four here, it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word and then fallen away since on their own they're crucifying again the Son of God. In other words, there are people that are going back to a lesser sacrifice, a lesser priest, a lesser covenant, and they're being lost because of that. And then I think the big, therefore, as I read this book, is in the 19th verse of chapter 10. I really think if you look at this book as a sermon, that's the major hinge that I see in it. 
because of all of this theological truth that has been laid out in the nature of the covenant, this is where we take the turn on how we live and our response to it. And then we get that, you know, the great roll call of the faith, what it means to live by faith. In other words, I think this is as the author, the preacher moves toward conclusion, this is the so what section. This is the what do we take with us? How does this change things? How does this affect us? For nine and a half, ten and a half chapters, the author has been making this case. And now having made it, he turns to this is what it means to you. Absolutely, Clint. I thought the same thing as I read it. That, therefore, has a weight and gravity in this argument that would be hard to miss. You switch from essentially making the case of this is what Christ is and this is what Christ means to, therefore, now how shall we live? And I think an interesting thing about this book is it's sprinkled with some passages that I'm almost certain you would know by heart. Things like, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's a very popular verse. There's lots of others you're going to find in here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings closely. Let us run with perseverance the race before us. There are some wonderful devotional verses in here. I think there's chapter 13 is full of that kind of language. Michael, I've never really thought of this before, but in some ways, Hebrews is a very good Christianity 101 book. Particularly, I think, if you can read it acknowledging that it was especially so for Jewish believers who were making the transition from Judaism to Christianity. But even for us on the other side of that transition, I think this is a pretty good introduction to Christian theology kind of book. I would agree with that, Clint. And I think I would also say that to modern readers, we may find it difficult to understand some of the extreme emphasis in this book on what we see called Christ's sacrifice, because I don't think we often think of the solution to our problems, the sacrificing of another thing. We tend to like to think that we can solve our own problems, and that's an assumption that this author does not share at all. This author, all the way back to the early chapters, talking about Jesus being the greatest high priest, this author assumes that human sinfulness requires temporary human sacrifice. In other words, that God calls us to these temporary sacrificial measures so that while we commit sin, we can put that sin on to other things and that that will temporarily appease God's judgment. But the author wants to say that that was never a long-term solution, that Jesus, because he's perfect, Jesus, because he's God, and Jesus, because he's man, can be the perfect high priest. He can be the perfect intercessor between us and God. He can be in the middle. And because of that, the eternal answer to human sinfulness is Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And so I think you're exactly right, Clint. This book is really a Christian theology 101, but you have to check some of your natural assumptions at the door and you have to be humble enough and willing to enter into the beginning of this author's assumption. And that is that we are broken and that the temporary solution to that needs an ultimate solution. And if you can do that, you're going to see in this how this author's made a compelling case that it's Jesus. 
So good insights, Michael, and I would only add that I think we see in that how seriously this author takes sin. We often think that sin has a consequence, but the author grows out of a tradition and an assumption that believes sin has a punishment, that there must be a punishment visited upon something or someone. And of course, in the Old Testament, those are the animals that are sacrificed, and he's now making this theological case that for Christians— that becomes the very Son of God who became human, that that one is punished for us, and that that sacrifice is perfect in a way that no other sacrifice could be. Therefore, it is final. It doesn't need repeated. It doesn't need revisited. It fulfills all the things that our sin demands, and therefore sets us free from our sin to live a new kind of life. And it's not surprising that most of the instructional material in this book gets put in at the end. You know, chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13 are full of that kind of stuff. Just that basic, now here's what your life should look like because of what Christ did. And that's good preaching. To connect our ethics to Christ's work and in that order is the right way to do it. I think I would point our attention just briefly to chapter 11 in that section you're talking about, Clint, where the point is really being driven home. And I think that chapter 11 is actually a really excellent example of the merit of the kind of reading of the New Testament we're doing right now. Because chapter 11, verse 1, I'm certain you've heard this at some point. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And if you just find this verse by itself, it is often talked about in Christian circles as faith accomplishing things for us. I have faith that this outcome will happen. I have faith that this resource will be given to me. I have faith that healing is going to come. We often think of this faith as in the thing it accomplishes for us. What you find when you read this book is this entire roll call of all the people who have faith Their faith is them living in this current earthly moment with their eyes beyond this moment. In other words, they're living with the troubles and difficulties of their life, and yet they're able to see beyond it to the heavenly place where everything is made perfect in Christ. Faith, in other words, isn't about them getting things from a vending machine God. It's them putting their hope and confidence in who God is beyond them. And in that, we see this call for us to do the same. Whether you're in prison for your faith, whether you're persecuted, whether you're in difficult moments, faith is seeing beyond that to something that is more perfect, more eternal, more permanent. And if we do that, then we're participating in this. So I think, once again, it's another nugget in this book that gets pulled out, but in context, it fits perfectly as to what this author is trying to tell us. Michael, there are two things I love about this 11th chapter. And the first is, if you just look at how often the phrase by faith is repeated. So the author here is weighing a little bit on the faith versus works. You know, he's made a case, as Paul did, that we access the grace that we have been given in Christ through faith. But then he essentially says, Every good thing you've ever heard of from any person in the history of God's family has acted by faith. By faith this happened, and by faith this happened, and by faith that happened. And I think the connection of that as an active thing, that our works, our best efforts, are laid upon the foundation of faith. That is faith that undergirds 
what we seek to do as we try to be obedient and faithful. And the other thing I like about this chapter and this approach is this idea that in faith, we share a connection with all of those who have gone before us. That what we are trying to do as we seek to live out a life of service to Christ connects us to all those who have done the same, even those who lived before Christ. Because it's an extension of the covenant that God has provided, the care, the direction, the guidance that God has provided. And this idea that we take our place in this exceedingly long line of faithful people and we inherit that call to move forward in our day and our time and practice these things, to be faithful, to live by faith. And the transition, we spoke about the word therefore, but he begins chapter 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us... And then he moves on to talk about what it means for us that we inherit this calling to live by faith. I think this is a really strong chapter. And I think I would just point out a small thing there, Clint, is that we sometimes, I think, get a little put off by how far we are chronologically from even the earliest Christians to the tune of thousands of years. And sometimes we feel separated from these letters that we are now reading. They feel like there's a gulf between us and them. But remember, the people who received this letter were thousands of years removed from Abraham, thousands of years removed from this family of faith. And so the gulf existed for them as we experience it. And this author says, with such beautiful confidence, like you said, Clint, having this great cloud of witnesses, it's in the active sense they're here around us. We have the witnesses surrounding us. It's like the stadium that we're running into, cheering, be full of faith, be faithful, run the race with your eyes beyond the thing in front of you. See beyond to the greatest, to Christ the fulfillment. And there's this wonderful, inspiring, not just inspiring to us as an individual, but inspiring call to the church in this time and place to be the church. And it is a connection not only to this community of believers, but it's a connection, like you said, Clint, all the way back to the very beginning of God's story. I think, Michael, the idea that we stand in this line of what Hebrews calls the heroes of the faith is both encouraging and humbling, which I think is exactly what the author intends. We look to those who have gone before us and what they've done as they pursued faithfulness, and we're encouraged by that in our struggle. And not surprisingly, the 12th chapter that begins with that verse of the cloud of witnesses goes on to talk about enduring trials, enduring oppression, enduring persecution, discipline. And that's the connection that as we seek to be faithful, as they endured their hardships, we may have to do the same. And I think as you get into chapter 12, you're going to find some phrases that are very similar to Paul's writings in the letters that we've already read. Some comments about avoiding sexual immorality, living in peace, demonstrating holiness, making sure that the grace of God is on display. Regardless of the author of this letter and where we find the community that this was sent to and some of those textual questions, I do think what is striking here is in the midst of this sermon, this building case, we get to the exact same thing that Paul was trying to speak into the lives of those other communities. It ends up looking the same thing because of Christ, therefore this. And what we see is, I think, not just a cloud of witnesses as in these heroes of faith, it's the cloud of witnesses of the entire New Testament 
that the reality of Jesus, as we see portrayed in the first 11 chapters of this book, that reality changes things. And it looks like us now being fashioned as people called to live in relationship with one another. And that requires right relationship. It requires discipline. Those exact words are used here. It requires abstaining from sinfulness, especially that sinfulness that divides us. And so once again, we see it come back to in this book, not only a teaching of what it is we should believe, but even more importantly, how it makes us one community and what it looks like for us to be members of that community. Yeah, I think I would argue that most of the practical teaching in this book is late. Having done the theological work, the author now moves to our response to it. And this is where I think we get the ethical stuff, you know, pursue peace with everyone. Chapter 13 is probably has the most of that stuff in it. Let mutual love continue. Show hospitality to strangers. Let the marriage be held in honor by all. Let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Remember your leaders. Summarized, I think, perhaps with verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. For the author, it seems crystal clear that if we understand who Christ is and what he's done, it's going to affect the way we live. And that breaks down into some very practical, daily kind of rituals and routines that all of us are called to do. And you and I, who have had to try and put sermons together, know that the goal is always to try and connect theological thinking with implementation. And here it is. You could read this 13th chapter, and if you get through this and don't feel like one of those verses is aimed at you, I'm not sure you've paid attention. There's something in here, I think, for probably everybody. I couldn't agree more, Clint. And in fact, I think it's interesting you turn to verse 16. I was looking at verse 15, where it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And like any good sermon that started, remember those opening notes about sacrifice? Who's sacrificing for us? Jesus. Whose sacrifice is perfect? Jesus. How does this book end? We should make a sacrifice of praise. Of course, our sacrifice isn't even of the same type as Jesus' sacrifice. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, we make a sacrifice of praise. Because of his offer of his life, we offer up our lives in constant response of thanksgiving. Because he gave, we give. And so I think these are maybe some preacher's notes in the sense of you can see these themes that the book began with, the book ends with. The place that may have started in a very theological conversation ends with very practical implementation, to use your word, Clint. And I do hope as you open this book and as you read it, don't get caught on autopilot. Don't get caught in a cycle of reading through things because you see the word faith again or sacrifice again or, or better again. Slow down, read carefully, try to think what's happening here. And I think as you get to the end, that all builds to this point where it really does hit home and it really does carry a very practical, what does it mean to be full of faith for me today? And it really lands and I think it does it well. I think it's a very good bridge from fairly sophisticated, deep theology to what does this mean for me and what do I take from it? And Michael, in my opinion, Hebrews also has the best closing words of maybe any letter in the New Testament. When I was in Texas, 
The pastor I worked with closed nearly every service with these words. Now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in every good work so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a great benediction. Really strong words. And those are the words that we're going to leave you with today. We are really thrilled to be able to dive into this book. I think like Clint shared at the beginning, in some ways, I don't think Hebrews has been on the radar enough. And so as you read, I hope that you can see the depth of wisdom and also the really practical insight as to what it means to be a Christ follower. Friends, thank you for joining us for this conversation. It means so much that you take time out of your week to do so. We look forward to seeing you again next week as we continue our conversation as we go through the entire New Testament in 90 days. Thanks.